Would you take a Bible with me this morning? Turn to the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. The Gospel text this morning is from Luke, the second chapter, beginning at verse 22 and taking us through verse 40. As you turn there, if you're able this morning with us, if you would stand in honor of the Lord's Word as we read together this text from Luke. When the time came for their ritual cleansing in accordance with the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. They offered a sacrifice in keeping with what's stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, now, master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared the salvation in the presence of all the peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. His father and mother were probably a little shocked, but also amazed by what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this boy is a sign to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who belonged to the tribe of Asher. She was very old. After she married, she lived with her husband for seven years. She was now an 84-year-old widow. I apologize to those of you 84 and older who just got called very old by the scripture, but it's okay. She never left the temple area, but worshiped God with fasting and prayer night and day. She approached at that very moment and began to praise God and to speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I would like to start this morning with um, a fairly obvious, but nevertheless, kind of important philosophical observation. And that is this, we do not see the world as it is, but we see and experience the world as it is and as we are. Um, I'll give you an example of that. If you were to ask um, my family today, how was your Christmas? Uh, you might get slightly different answers. If you were to ask me, I might say, well, it was different. We weren't able to have everybody with us, and so it was just a few of us, and it was, it was quiet, but it was great. We got to sleep in. When lunch came, there was plenty of food for everybody. We stayed in our jammies all day. We watched movies and did puzzles. It was awesome. If you ask Debbie, she might say, well, it was different. And I didn't like it very much. There wasn't any noise and hubbub. We stayed in our pajamas all day. There was too much food. And all we did was watch movies and do puzzles. I don't know if she would say that. But, but the point is this. All of us today, if, you interviewed, if we interviewed you on your way out of the sanctuary, um, we would all have been in the same place, but all have experienced something slightly different. 
That, that doesn't mean that there isn't truth with a capital T or that things don't really happen. It just means that we are always interpreting. And we, are all, and we cannot escape that reality. And so let me bore you just a little bit with kind of three ways um, philosophers think about this. Um, there's a philosopher by the name of Martin Heidegger who says, here's the problem. We can never escape space and time. It would be great if I could escape this moment and this place and kind of ascend above to see objectively what is going on. But here's the problem. I can only see from up here what is going on, and you can only see from there. And I can only see kind of in this moment and with all that I carry into this moment. There's another uh, philosopher, uh, Thomas Kuhn, and some of you who are in science things probably know this name. For he's really important in that field because he says whenever like science, scientists are doing experiments, they don't see everything that's going on, even in an experiment, but they see through what Kuhn calls paradigms, that we don't see everything that's happening, but we interpret like a pair of glasses through particular paradigms. And eventually, if there's enough things that don't fit into that paradigm, we have a shift of paradigms. But we can never escape the fact that we're interpreting or seeing through paradigms. Probably my favorite of these kinds of philosophers is a guy named Ludwig Wittgenstein. He's a language guy. And he says, here's the problem. We can never get outside of the language that we are using. So here's my problem today. I, there are things in my head, and by the way, they've been there all week bugging me, that I want to get out to all of you today. I want you to, to know and to think and to be shaped by these things that have been in my head and heart all week. But here's the problem. I have been desperately trying to find the words to express them. And the problem is I, I, I'm struggling to find the right words. And today, about one o'clock after lunch, I will walk around the house grumpy because it's Sunday. And I'll be grumpy because I'll be frustrated that there was something that I just couldn't quite express because I couldn't find the words. And the, the other problem is I can't find the words, but even when I say them or even when I think I found the right words, you're listening to them. And those words may mean something slightly different to you than they mean to me. And so that language is very inexact and it means that we're constantly thinking and interpreting the world through inexact language. So the problem I have today as a preacher is not that you are hearing my sermon. The problem is that you are hearing my sermon. And what I say, you may not hear. This is why one of the, the funny things when you are a preacher is that there are some weeks where you'll get, you'll get various kinds of emails in reflection on how Sunday went. And it's not unusual to get an email from somebody who will say, I have no idea what you said Sunday. You lost me completely. Or I'm super offended. And on the same day, you'll get an email that says, that sermon changed my life, right? And the majority of people can't remember it. Um, but, but why is that important? Why is that important? It's important this morning as we look at this text because I assume that there were many people in Jerusalem and around the temple the day that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated and they came to make sacrifice. But in the midst of all of those people and all of those folks, it was only Simeon and Anna who had the eyes to see what was really going on that day. That for some reason, Simeon and Anna uniquely had the ability to see in this couple and in this child 
the unique and profound, transforming, redemptive work of God in the world. If you have the text open, uh, let me reflect on it for just a little bit this morning. It's a fascinating text, and, and probably if you gathered around and read the Christmas story this week, it was out of Luke and the angels and the shepherds. Luke gives us far more kind of birth and childhood aspects of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. But the interesting thing about Luke, um, before we got into Advent, uh, we were at the end of kind of last uh, liturgical year, we were in the book of Matthew. And if you were with us, you'll remember I, I said several times, the, the book of Matthew, Matthew narrates the life of Jesus through the history of Israel. You can almost put the story of Jesus in Matthew and the story of Israel next to each other, and you can see clearly the ways that Matthew is retelling the whole history of Israel through the life of Jesus. Luke also wants to connect Jesus to Israel, but he does it in a unique way. He doesn't do it so much in the story of Israel as in the practices of Judaism. So notice, sometime when you're reading Luke and Acts, make a note at how many times Luke will, like in Acts, talk about how Paul will show up and go to the synagogue. Or they are practicing particular Jewish practices. Um, in Luke chapter 4, which is really the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Luke, Jesus goes to the synagogue, and Luke even says it this way, as was his custom. And what we get in Luke, then, is this rooting of Jesus' life in the practices and rituals and law of Israel, the covenant of Israel, in not a way that says that doesn't mean anything, but in a way that re-narrates, that fills full or fulfills all of those practices. And so in this text... And in this, narr this narrative, we get kind of three practices that Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, in a sense, participating in that root them in Jewish life. If you have your Bible open, you may have noticed that we started at verse 22 today. In your Bible, it's probably verse 21 is, felt like it got left out because there's probably a break between verses 20 and 21 in your Bible, and there's maybe even a headline above verse 21. I don't know all the reasons why the lectionary chooses not to include verse 21 today. But if you read it, it says this, on the eighth day they had Jesus circumcised. And I don't know, again, why it gets excluded. Um, maybe preachers got tired of asking, answering questions from junior hires afterwards. I don't know. But, but you have Jesus rooted in the covenant with Abraham that on the eighth day Jesus is circumcised. But where our text picks up is in verse 22, where Mary and Joseph are going to the temple to participate in a sacrifice for purification. If you uh, are interested this week, um, make a note to yourself to re read Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12 prescribes the process that Mary and Joseph are going through. The process for a woman to be reconnected into community after she has given birth. Now, I know that seems strange to us in our kind of modern ears, but in the Old Testament in particular, there were all of these things that could make a person ritually unclean for a time, usually associated with our body in some way. So, for example, in the New Testament, anytime Jesus heals a leper, Jesus doesn't just heal them and then says, Go get them, tiger. Have a great life, right? As soon as they're healed, Jesus will say what? Go show yourself to the priest. And a priest then, and there will be a ritual involved there, the priest will be able to proclaim that you are now communally and ritually clean so you can enter back into community. 
Now, there are a number of things that would make a person ritually unclean, and birth is one of those. I, uh, I've been having a great time at home. Um, I found a whole bunch of our old videotapes, and I bought a digital converter, and so I've been converting them, and it's been really fun to kind of relive um, a lot of uh, really bad soccer and baseball games. But, uh, but we've been reliving all of this kind of stuff and, and really cute Christmas productions and things. Um, but I found, I found the tape of Jonah's birth, and I, I still can't believe um, Jonah was born uh, through C-section, and I still can't believe the doctor let me tape the whole thing. But he did. And it's really cool. And when I found it, I started showing everybody, and somehow that bothered my wife. Um, she kept saying to me, that is gross, right? Don't, nobody wants to see that. And I kind of feel like, yes, no. So if you'll turn to the screen. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, like, I understand why, she, why, why I'm bothering her with this. Because it's kind of icky. And a lot of ickiness involved. Now, there's some real beauty and amazing, amazing things that happen. But it's kind of this all sorts of body stuff, Right? Well, Israel says, so here's what you have to do. After a time period is over, then you go to the temple, you give a sacrifice, and now, after having gone through that whole ordeal, you will now be proclaimed ritually and communally clean to go back to regular processes of life. Are you with me? Now, this is kind of exciting, although I don't feel like you're excited. In verse 6 of Leviticus 12, it says, here's what you're supposed to sacrifice. Bring a lamb and either a dove or a pigeon. But when you get to verse 8 of Leviticus 12, it says this, unless you can't afford a lamb. And if you can't afford a lamb, then sacrifice either two doves or two pigeons. Now, the reason why that's interesting is Luke tells us Mary and Joseph bring two turtle doves, two doves to sacrifice. In some ways, it's Luke's way of telling us Mary and Joseph were poor. Jesus was born and lived in the marginalized parts of Israel and Judah. But they came and and not only participated in circumcision, but this rite of purification. And then lastly, they participate in this rite of dedication. Much of Luke's narrating of the early parts of Jesus' life are very similar and kind of have a feel for the life of Samuel. If you'll remember, Hannah, when she is barren, cries, and Eli thinks she's drunk. But he blesses her, and she ends up having a child, and she brings Samuel and dedicates him to the Lord, and then she leaves him. But it becomes Samuel, a Hebrew word that means to hear God, It's Samuel who hears God and hears this word, this prophetic word that in a sense overturns the life of the tabernacle, overturns the priesthood. Eli will lose his spot in the priesthood and now a whole new lineage will begin. Luke is saying to us, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to be dedicated. And much like Elizabeth who sang a song like Hannah's and was barren, now, too, Christ will be dedicated, and he will come, day, come back one day and overturn the temple. And so you get these practices, circumcision, purification, dedication. 
But again, what fascinates me in this narrative is that in the midst of all of this religious, ritual, Judaism stuff, Simeon and Anna have the the eyes and the ability to see in this moment this poor couple in this crowded city. They see in them not just the normal movement of people. They don't see in them just one more one more pilgrim making an already crowded city more crowded. They do not see in them refugees that are, that are making life difficult or outsiders to be feared. They don't even see in them as many in Jerusalem would have seen them as an opportunity to sell two turtle doves. Cha-ching! People from whom they could... They could get something. Simeon and Anna see and they recognize that in this little family coming from the poorest part of Judea, God is redemptively at work in them, and especially in this little one. This morning, I want to spend a few minutes just reflecting with you. I, some of you know I've been working on a... a uh, a book on the book of Jonah for some time. But what fascinates me about the story of Jonah is not so much the fish, that's kind of cool, and Nineveh converting, that's really cool, but it's the fact that Jonah misses out on Nineveh's conversion. That the book of Jonah ends with Jonah outside the city, kind of grumpy and cranky, uh, wanting to die, but missing out on everything that God is doing. And it's kind of through that lens that I want to reflect for just a little bit on this story today and ask this question, why is it that we, like Jonah, and like so many others who were in the temple that day, fail to see the redemptive work of God in our midst? That we see and interpret what is happening and fail to recognize the hand of God. So I want to think about six uh, reasons this morning that that I think ways our eyes get shaped, ways that we get framed so that we miss out on what God is doing in the world. And and let me say, first of all, I've been thinking about this all week. This is not systematic. It is not uh, coming out of a great deal of research. This is just my own reflection of how even in my own life and development, I feel like there have been moments where I have missed out on what God is doing. And I think about these in kind of life stages, although that's not exact. And so just because you're in this life stage does not mean necessarily this is the way your eyes have been shaped, nor does it mean that that only happens in that life stage. There may be others of you in other life stages who are experiencing some things from what I'm going to think of as part of other life stages. But now that you're thoroughly confused, let me think about it with you. When we're young... And especially when we're adolescents and into our teens and middle and late adolescence, I think increasingly we are shaped or tempted to view the world through a lens of boredom, through a lens of boredom. Uh, having taught college students for a while now, there will always come a time somewhere in the semester where they've had enough and I've had enough and we'll have a conversation one day about apathy. And I'll say, talk to me about your apathy. I am up here lighting myself on fire, giving you the wisdom of the ages. Why are you so incredibly bored, right? 
that there's something in our life and in our culture, and there's something about being young where the world seems to to try to draw our attention constantly and keep our attention. And what happens, and especially in a culture like ours with so much technology and so much speed and rapid movement, we begin to get shaped in such a way that, that God may move this morning, but if you're especially a young person shaped by the lens of boredom, you would never know it because you didn't see it. And the problem really is that if we take this, seri- this text seriously, God's reconciliation and this moment of reconciliation and redemption rarely comes with flashbulbs and laser shows and smoke machines. In the text, the redemption comes in the undynamic form of a baby born in poverty, participating in very routine religious practices. Nothing about that day in Jerusalem was special. There were no fireworks, sirens. Nothing went viral in Jerusalem that day. As we move into adulthood, especially young adulthood, I think that we get shaped and are tempted to view the world through cynicism. Sometime in our early 20s, many of us figure out, um, and I've seen it in my children's eyes, and it just makes me sad. They've realized I'm not perfect. I tried to keep the charade up as long as possible. But sometime in our early 20s or late teens, we realize, man, our parents are, I've wanted to be like them, but there's parts of them I do not want to be like. Having spent so many years mentoring young people in ministry, there's a moment almost inevitably that comes about two, three years into your first ministry opportunities when you realize that the best part of ministry is people and the worst part of ministry is people. And you realize how broken and flawed even leaders within the church are. And you realize this institution, this this body that you have felt called to be a leader of, that you've wanted to be somebody who's leading the revolution of Christ to bring about a new creation, and you wind up leading a church that has brokenness in it and systemic issues and And what happens, especially when you're in your 20s and and you've had enough education now to be dangerous but not wise, is then you view the world cynically. So there's nothing good, nothing of redemptive value in the world. And the problem is that God, God chooses to call and work through imperfect humans. Notice as you study the Scripture, how many flaws of God's people are revealed in the Scripture? And not only flaws of the humans, but flaws of the institutions and the the systems that they are part of. 
And even in this text, God's redemption is at work through the frailty and failures of very human people. And in a location, the temple that is filled with the kavod Yahweh, with the fingerprints of God all over it, but it is also so broken that Jesus will have to come back in about 33 years and overturn the whole thing. And then as adulthood enters in, and hopefully we get past our cynicism, we get shaped by a lens or tempted to view the world through a lens of busyness. As I have said to you often, um, all of us in ministry recognize that the patterns and habits of participation in worship and other kinds of ways of formation, they just have radically changed. But I do not believe it's because people are less committed. I think the problem is that we are too committed. And it's not that we have dropped those things. It's that all of those things have gotten squeezed out into a, in a culture where busyness is a virtue. But the problem when we are shaped by this lens of busyness where we are trying to make our way through a career and we're trying to get our children into life and hopefully find their identity while we're trying to find ours. In the midst of all of that, the problem is God rarely is revealed in the fire or the wind, but is revealed in the silence. And in this text, Simeon and Anna are able to perceive the quiet work of God in this quiet and seemingly insignificant family from Nazareth, in the insignificant lives of Joseph and Mary. As life progresses, I think we're shaped and tempted to view the world through a lens of security. And I feel that. Am I constantly thinking about, are we going to make it, babe? I can see retirement from here. Whatever we do, let's not risk. (laughs) Let's not lose what we've built. And so we view the world and we view our lives through these lenses of of security, which also then makes them lenses of fear that we're going to lose something or lenses of fear that others may take it. And the problem is that God does not act in ways that live into or affirm or secure our story. As I say so often, this is not about figuring out how God fits into our story to make it work better and be more secure. God's redemption is being revealed in ways that turn over tables and invite people into the risk of faith. Over and over, the scripture invites us to find security in this way, that the one who has called us is able to do it. So that our security is not in chariots and horses, is not in wealth and income, but we have risked enough to know that God is able to do immeasurably more. And in him we find our security. For far too many people in the world at any stage of life, we're shaped to view the world through a lens of pain and hurt, disappointment. For so many that have been damaged, abused, and hurt, it becomes the lens through which we interpret every relationship and every interaction. And I don't want to point a problem, but I want to say the good news of the text is that Jesus is always found in those places 
of hurt and marginalization and disappointment and shame. And the challenge, not the problem, but the challenge is that this work of God always invites us into wholeness, into holiness. It invites us into healing. I'm thinking here about a story in John, the fifth chapter. Do you remember the story where Jesus encounters the, the crippled man at the, at the pool of Bethesda? And when he talks to him, the guy says, my life is hard. I'd like to get in the pool, but everybody jumps in before me. And Jesus, after hearing about all the hurt and disappointment in this man's life, he finally looks at him and says, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be healed? Which is not a demeaning question, but a question that says, do you have one more risk in you? Can you open oneself up to be transformed by the loving presence of God? Finally, as we get into our later years, I think we're shaped and tempted to view the world through a lens of criticism. And I don't know that I'm there yet, but I can see it from here. Um, I think this is kind of, criticism is the natural income, or the, the natural product or outcome when we recognize we're beginning to lose control of things. And the reason I say I can, I can see it from here, some of you know Deb just had surgery on, on her right shoulder, and I somehow messed up my left shoulder. So we had a wonderful couple moment this week in physical therapy together. We always dreamed of doing, of being, someday, babe, we'll journey to physical therapy together. She had no idea what she was getting into 30 years ago. Um, I can sense, I can sense my body is not doing what it used to do. Not that it used to do really good things, but it's not even doing the half-hearted things it used to do. I, I, I've been trying to kind of walk and jog, but I have to tell you, my body does not recover like it used to. And what's really bothering me these days, and I don't know if it's just because there's too many names in my head or too many things up there now, but I used, to, I used to not need these at all. I used to be able to recall people's names. And now I need somebody who walks behind me and whispers <laughs> names in my ear. I've become my grandfather. It's terrifying. I used to be the young guy around tables of leadership. Somehow, I've become one of the older people at the table now. And I can see in the eyes of these young, smart-alecky kids thoughts like, your brain doesn't work like it used to. Maybe you should move on now and give that chair to somebody else. It's not there yet, but I can sense a day coming. And some of you are there where you feel like, man, I have not just lost capability, but... But position, authority, a world I have lost, a world that was familiar to me. I do not know how to make sense of this world. These kids taking over the church, they don't dress right and they sing weird stuff. Let me type that out right now. 
You're not doing what I'm used to you doing. Send. And what happens is a lens of criticism, of loss, becomes the lens through which we interpret the world. And the problem in the text is that God's redemptive activity is coming in patterns that are familiar to Simeon and Anna. But here's what's so beautiful about what both of them say. What Christ brings is something that has some similarity to what has come, but it is also radically new. And what makes Simeon and Anna Simeon and Anna is not that, oh, finally somebody's doing what we've always wanted. But somebody is bringing the newness we expected and hoped for. And only my wife got blessed by that. That was really a good line. And so how did Simeon and Anna see what God was doing? How did they avoid boredom and cynicism and busyness and security and pain and criticism and all the other lenses I probably forgot and didn't think about? How? How did Simeon and Anna see on that busy day in Jerusalem with poor people flooding the city to do religious practices, how did they see in that moment that everybody else missed the hand of God bringing new creation? The text says they were doing this. They were waiting. And that doesn't mean, is this sermon almost over? They were waiting. Like people who've cleaned the house and they're waiting for the guests to come. Whose lives are prepared in waiting for the new nest to come. They were hoping. They were worshiping. They were praying. And they were connected into the work of the Holy Spirit, the text says. And so as I think about this this morning, I... And I think about us. There's young people in this church and in our lives who I just pray would not give in to seeing the world through a constant lens of boredom. But somehow the Spirit of God would always allow them to see the world with wonder. The unique, sometimes quiet, sometimes other people don't notice it, but the unique hand of God at work in the world. And by the way, young people, we need you. You don't have to grow old to become Simeon and Anna. Paul says, don't let anybody think little of you because you're young. I pray for a generation that is incredibly cynical, cynical about leadership in the world, cynical about leadership in the church, cynical about anything being good at all. That we would not give in to that and miss what God is doing, but that we would have eyes that are always shaped by the hope in the one, not in those who who may see and disappoint us, but hope in the one at work in them that is able to do immeasurably more. 
I pray for so many of us whose eyes and lives are just shaped and we're so busy, we're so busy that, that God just cannot get on our calendar. That we would be shaped by Sabbath. And I don't just mean kind of showing up to church. I mean a life that recognizes, has a kind of patterns of rest in it that recognize we are so much more than what we do for a living. And our children and our grandchildren need so much more than what we can buy and earn for them and give to them. They need our presence with them. And for those of us who are in moments where security is almost everything, that our eyes would not be shaped by the fears that come with those who are obsessed with security, but we would be redefined by faith. For so many here and in our world who have been shaped by pain, that somehow the Spirit of God would break in, invite trust, and bring healing love. And for all those of us who have eyes that are increasingly shaped by, by a critical spirit, that that would be changed by a vision of expectation and trust. Expectation that God is never, has never done God's best work in the past. <laughs> but expectation that God's, God's best stuff is always in front of us. And trust that even when we have no idea what these crazy kids are doing, we have trust in the God who has called them. Hear me this morning. I'm going to land the plane. Hear me. This is not, this is not a post-Christmas sermon about how I wish as a congregation we'd just be more positive. You're really positive for the most part. This is a sermon that sees in Simeon and Anna what we desperately need, not just from those of us with fewer hairs or gray ones, but those entering into the, the very formation of life itself. We need people who are hoping and trusting and praying and worshiping and are in tune with the Spirit in ways that allow their eyes to have a prophetic imagination, to believe that God is at work in our midst and is able to see that and name that and, and celebrate that and call others into it. I don't know how God, I don't know all the ways I should say that God is moving in this moment and in this place. Especially in 2020, it's been a time when a lot of those other things that can shape our vision can shape our vision. And it's been a hard time. To see God at, at work. But I hope that we will be a congregation full of Simeon and Annas, both young and old, 
who have the prophetic imagination to see and understand and proclaim and trust that God in his mysterious ways is at work in our midst. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know thus saith the lord jesus jesus how i trust him how i proved him or and jesus jesus precious jesus oh for grace to trust him more jesus jesus how i trust him how i proved him more and more jesus jesus Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him. God, I'm grateful today um, for some young people in, in my life and in this community and in your church. who have not allowed their vision for life to be shaped by boredom and cynicism. But who look at life with the wonder of a world filled with your presence and with your activity. And who are so filled with hope for what you may do and what you are doing. I thank you for some folks in the middle of life who have not been so shaped by busyness and by the quest for security that they have lost the rhythm and the ability to see you at work. And they live with such faith and are finding that you, you are faithful, and it is so sweet to trust in you. Oh, for grace to trust you more. I thank you for folks in this body and in your church who have been hurt And who have every excuse to allow that hurt to be the thing that defines the rest of their days. I thank you um, that we find you in our places of poverty and hurt, in our places of pain, in our places of shame. So I pray, God, that you would give those folks the continued strength to be able to trust that you that you can heal through your love 
that they can trust you and trust your work in them. And God, I, I thank you for some Anna and Simeon's um, not just positive folks, although I really thank you for them. Uh, but I thank you for some folks who, like Simeon and Anna, live with such joy that even if they, like Simeon and Anna, don't get to see the fulfillment of what you're doing, they can see you at work right now, bringing it about. They can see it, as the writer of Hebrews says, from a distance and can celebrate it. Folks with wisdom and years who have the eyes to say, God is at work in our midst. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Form us to be um, folks with prophetic imaginations today, like Simeon and Anna. Shape our eyes to see you at work, oftentimes in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. But we trust that you are at work in our midst. Teach us to see you and to trust you more. For we pray this in the name of Emmanuel, God with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.